Hello, I'm Randy Sutton, your host here today at the Voice for American Law Enforcement. I'm a 34-year police veteran. I'm the author of several books, including A Cop's Life, and the founder of The Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers, www.thewoundedblue.org. On this show, we talk about all things law enforcement, topical things that are happening in the news today. And I have a great guest waiting for me in the interview room. We're going to bring him out right now. Hello, I want to introduce everybody to uh, Jason Johnson. Jason is the president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund out of Washington, D.C. He is a uh, veteran of law enforcement. He did uh, some 20 years with the Prince George's County Police Department and then was an assistant commissioner for the Baltimore Police Department. And I want to welcome you to the show today, Jason. Thanks so much for joining me here on The Voice for American Law Enforcement. My pleasure, Andy. Good to be with you, and I look forward to having a, a good conversation today. And that we will. That we will. There's, 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 no, uh, there's no doubt that we're going to have a, a, an engaging conversation. So, first of all, let's talk a little bit about your past history, and then we're going to talk about what the uh, Law Enforcement Defense Fund does. Many people doesn't, don't even know that, that your organization exists. So let's talk about your, your, uh, your previous life when you were, uh, when you were a real cop. Yeah, so I worked for just about 20 years in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is a, a large uh, county just outside of D.C. of about a million population, about 1,600, I think 1,700 uh, police officers. Uh, and it was a great career. I mean, I really, really, uh, I, I can't complain at all. I had a fantastic time. I feel about my career probably the same way you feel, Randy, about your uh, your career in, in Las Vegas. Um during my career, I got to do a whole bunch of different things. And one of the things I did was I went to law school. Uh, and the reason I went to law school, the primary reason I went to law school was uh, I saw cops being mistreated. I saw cops being you know, railroaded, criminally charged, even incarcerated in some cases. Uh, and, and usually it was because of the pressure applied by the media and politics, uh, progressive politics around DC. And so uh, it really motivated me to want to learn more and to eventually grow into a role that I, I, I assumed later later on, and then I, I have the the really the, the the opportunity to occupy now as president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Uh, uh, we're we're a nonprofit organization. We've been around for about thirty years, for, for a long time before I I got involved. I've just been uh, president here for about three and a half years. Uh, the organization was founded by you know Edwin Meese and Al Regnery and others that came out of the Reagan Justice Department. They saw that. Cops were being railroaded, mistreated, wrongfully prosecuted. And so they uh, they built this organization. And in the time it's been around, just about, as I said, about 30 years, uh, we've helped hundreds of police officers uh, raised and contributed millions of dollars to the legal defense of uh, police officers, again, who are wrongfully uh, charged, wrongfully prosecuted. We sometimes get involved in civil cases, but, but our bread and butter really are criminal cases in which officers are, uh, are criminal defendants. So the, the organization has been around for over 30 years. You know, I think it's, uh, it's telling that the, um, you know, many people think that this is something new, that police officers being uh, unjustly accused of, of criminal activity is something new. The reality is far different, is it not? 
It is not new, Randy. Uh, however, it has taken on uh, a life of its own. We uh, Historically, uh, our organization has, at any given time, we might have one to three officers that we're supporting at a time. And right now we're supporting 17. Wow. Uh, 17 individual law enforcement officers at the same time. And there are two real reasons for that. The first reason is that, uh, and I think the, the biggest reason, is that uh, you know, the politics of the moment are pushing prosecutors, even those prosecutors who aren't uh, anti-police, uh, you know, necessarily, they're feeling the heat uh, and they're and they're being pushed into prosecuting cops that maybe they don't even feel like they should be prosecuting. Uh, it's happening at the state and the federal levels. Uh, the other reason is COVID. So COVID did delay. You know, we had, we had we've had some officers that we've been working with now for like three years, even longer than three years. Um, that should have had a trial by now. They should have been acquitted by now. But because uh, courthouses were closed for long periods of time, they haven't had a trial yet. And so we're still working with them. We're still supporting them. And they they've, they they remain on our list of 17. Um, and we hope to get some of those officers cleared soon. In the meantime, you know, literally, I think I told you before, Randy, I'm getting calls at least once a week, sometimes multiple times a week, from officers, from their attorneys, from their family members, you know, looking for help, uh, and, and, and paying for their legal defense. We're talking, uh, you know, $100,000 is nothing uh, to pay for the legal defense of an officer involved in a shooting or another serious uh, incident. So we, we you know, we, we, um, we rate, fortunately, we've got so many pro-law enforcement people across the country who, who uh, contribute to us, contribute to the officers that we support. And uh, we're blessed in that way that we're able to offer this, this help. That is a, that is a blessing, and and considering the anti law enforcement environment that has permeated our nation over the last few years, it's really good to hear that there are uh, strong supporters out there who literally put their money where their mouth is. So let I actually um, uh, have referred people to you in the past as well, um, officers who who are clearly being unjustly accused. So I know how. Um, how important it is the job that you do and the organization that you serve as president of. If you would, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about a little bit more about the organization. Um, When you say that you you provide support for uh, legal defense, how does that actually work? What are the mechanics of that? So generally, what I, I mean when I say we provide support, I mean at a minimum that that means attorney's fees. So it, it depends on how the case comes to us. You know, some of the cases uh, come to us. The officer already has some support, either some insurance coverage or maybe their union uh, has has pledged a certain amount of financial support. In those cases, we kind of make up the balance. The the portion of that that otherwise would be the officer financing, either with family money or maybe selling their home or whatever they would have to do to pay for an attorney, we pick that portion up um, at a minimum. And then, you know, there's other fees too. Sometimes there are expert witness costs, jury consultants, you know, you name it. Uh, there's even been a few situations where we've we've helped the officer's family just pay the bills while while the case is pending. Um, keep, keep, keep their home, pay the mortgage, buy food, whatever it is that they need, uh, we, we're flexible. We, we do all of those things depending on what the need is. And uh, we've done all of the above and we'll continue to do that because the idea is that we want to we want the officer to focus on, you know, defending themselves, working with their attorneys, get through this incredibly, incredibly stressful process. Uh, it can tear a family apart and we want to keep them intact. We want to make sure they, they get the best 
not only best legal representation, but best you know use of force experts, jury consultants, you name it, whatever they need. That's what we that's what we sign up for. Would would you talk a little bit about um, the the you know when you when a police officer is accused of a crime? That's your bread and butter is when they're actually accused of a crime on an on-duty situation. Um, how would an officer come about even knowing that um, the defense fund exists? Well, Randy Sutton is going to help us get a, get the word out. <laughs> no, we, uh, yeah, we, we do that in a lot of ways. And unfortunately, you know, they're always, uh, I hear, you know, um, it's a mixed bag because sometimes I start to feel like, hey, we're actually making progress. We're getting our name out there. I'm getting calls from people saying, hey, I read your op-ed. I, I heard you on certain podcasts or newscasts or whatever. Uh, they, now they know who we are. Our web traffic is increasing. I have to start thinking, hey, people know who we are. Uh, but the reality is there's always going to be some people. I just talked to a guy today who had been in law enforcement for a whole career, and he, he's got a friend who has now been a police officer who's been charged and actually convicted of a crime. And they had never heard of us. And so it's it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's a constant effort to get our to get our name out there, you know, even though we've been around for, for 30 years and we've, you know, helped hundreds and hundreds of cops. Right. There's always going to be, a, a, there, are, there are always going to be people who don't, who don't know who we are. And so it's on us to really continue to get the, the word out. And we rely on allied organizations uh, like the Wounded Blue and like many others to help um, become a, you know, part of a referral network. Because sometimes they, the, the primary thing that comes to mind might not be, hey, I need funding to hire an attorney. It might be, hey, I've got some really serious problems I'm dealing with here, either with an on-duty injury related to the case, or maybe some some other officer has dealt with a, a, an allied a law enforcement nonprofit who's familiar with us. And, you know, we can kind of refer people as needed back and forth to, to the organizations that really uh, fit their fit their need. But uh, to answer your question, it, it is um, it is a constant battle to try to, you know, make sure people know who we are. People in the law enforcement profession, make sure they know who we are. For sure. Now, do you, do you get to see much of uh, the inside of a courtroom yourself these days? No. Uh, <laughs> actually, I don't think there, until recently, there wasn't an inside of a courtroom <laughs> for a couple of years. Right. Uh, no, uh, we, we, uh, we generally limit our activities to, to funding. We, we, um, we, of course, work with the officers' attorneys and officers' families all the time. But having cases across the country, we, uh, we only rarely will actually attend a trial. But uh, we do engage on, in media. So uh, to the extent that it's desirable for defense counsel and for the officer, we will engage local uh, media around a case um, to try to serve as, you know, we're not a part of the defense team, but we, we want to we be an advocate in the media for the officer not speaking for the officer, speaking for ourselves, but certainly advocating uh, for the officer. And so we, we do offer that. And we do do that quite a bit. Yeah, that's and that's critical stuff. Um, can you talk about some of your high profile cases? And and one, what, one question that comes to mind is um, when you look at the, the, the number of cases that you've had uh, that you've been involved in over the last three years, what has your success rate been for vindicating these officers? Yeah, I'd say since I've been here, we have just had such a limited opportunity to have cases adjudicated. Um, since COVID hit and courthouses shut down, we've only had, I think, one case go to trial uh, since COVID started. Wow. Um, and as I said, we have we have one case in New Jersey right now in, um, in Camden, New Jersey. 
um, or I'm sorry, Newark, New Jersey, uh, Giovanni, the case of Giovanni Crespo is an, uh, a uh, Newark officer who's involved in a shooting, a fatal shooting has been, been sitting around for three years waiting for to, to get a trial and hasn't had, hasn't has been denied his right to a trial for that long. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the state's only surviving witness was killed himself in a, a car crash. He actually had been shot in a separate incident after the, the, the incident involving Officer Crespo. He was non-fatally shot and then later was killed in a car accident, yet the case uh, remains pending. So, um, you know, our, our uh, unfortunately, we do get disappointed. <laughs> we were disappointed very recently in the case of Eric DeValconair in Kansas City, Missouri. It was a, it was a case that... I. Not only me, but I mean, the entire defense team, everyone was very, very confident that he would earn an, an acquittal in front of a, a judge in a bench trial in Kansas City and inexplicably uh, was convicted. Uh, now, fortunately, he's out on an appeal bond. We feel very, very good about his prospects in an appeal. Um, but it's, you know, it's a mixed bag, Randy. I got to tell you, it's probably a lot like your business. I mean, we have moments of, of sheer um, joy where we feel like justice has been done and officer has been cleared. And then we have other, other cases that are just ending, um, disappointment and just remind us we've got a lot of work to do. And, the, and, and in the case of legal defense for police officers, uh, you know, this, the deck is, the deck is just stacked against these guys right now. I mean, uh, whether it's a jury or a judge, everyone is, uh, when they're serving on a case involving a law enforcement officer, they're concerned about how they're going to be perceived by their neighbors, how they're going to be portrayed in the media, what the political implications will be from a verdict in a case involving a police officer. So uh, all of these things just um, it makes it very difficult. Uh, and I don't say this lightly for for a law enforcement officer to get a fair trial in any of these cases because they're so delicate. Um, you know, there's even threats, even jurors that get threatened in these sorts of cases that if they don't you know, vote to convict the officer that there's some harm is going to come to them. And, and uh, it's it's uh, it's not a good time in America. We really got to find a way to get, as you and I have discussed before, and we'll continue to discuss, I'm sure, is get people to focus more on the facts and less on um, the narratives. And um, until we get there, you know, the one thing when people ask me, the, you know, what is the one thing we could do to help resolve this issue in law enforcement? I said, you know, if, if I could snap my fingers and say, get everyone to pay attention to the actual facts and ignore the media commentary and the hyperbole and all of the, the you know, invented um, narratives. And that's it. So, well, you know, and, and let's talk about something that's, that just happened the other day. And, and we're seeing this play out again. Uh, where this uh, shooting in Grand Rapids uh, that was, uh, you know, videotaped, of course. It was a, um, a, a Grand Rapids police officer made a traffic stop. The individual who he stopped was black. The officer was white. And the individual who he stopped was clearly um, not going to cooperate with the officer. Uh, he got out of the car, uh, uh, was told to get back in the car, refused. Um, you can see on the on the dash cam, the body cam, uh, that uh, he was uh, non-cooperative, that he basically re resisted. And then the officer wound up in a physical confrontation for two some two and a half minutes of literally a fight for his life where the suspect grabbed the officer's taser. And the officer wound up using deadly force. Now, um, immediately, I mean, I don't think that, I don't think that was, 
that that video had been released for for 10 seconds when Ben Crump, who is the ambulance chaser of ambulance chasers when it comes down to uh, use of force incidents that uh, he can grandstand on, was immediately calling for the arrest of the officer and the termination of the officer. And now we're seeing protests taking place. It, you know, when you see, when you watch this playing out in real time, what is your what are your thoughts? Well, I'll tell you, uh, Randy. So I, I, I happened to be traveling when, uh, as the weekend approached, and this became a huge um, media story. And so I, I, I saw the video for the first time on my phone, and I watched it two or three times because I had some media inquiries. There was an AP reporter that wanted to just kind of interview me about a story that they were doing about it. And so I looked at the video a couple of times. And you know, the approach that I take in these—I mean, obviously, it's something we do quite a bit when we're just commenting on a case is um, I like slow everything down and start with nothing. Like, I don't know anything about this case. I've seen a video of it. Now I understand a basic timeline, but that's about it. That's all I know. And I won't take a position on a case until I get a sufficient amount of information in a video. There is rare that there's a case where I just look at a video and say, okay, I now have an opinion on the, the, you know, the ultimate question about whether was this a justified use of force or not. Uh, I want more information. I still don't have that information, so I really don't have a strong opinion on whether the ultimate use of deadly force was was lawful or not. Uh, but I do, I do take except I, I do have other opinions about it. For the, my biggest opinion is is what you just said, which is no one can watch a video of this and condemn what the police officer did. You just don't know. What you can say is that the uh, the, the the person who was pulled over, who was ultimately uh, killed by the officer. Uh, had about a hundred chances to comply. Um, he was not killed because of a traffic violation, which is what the headline is in so many papers across the country is traffic violate, you know, officer kills him because of a traffic violation. Well, it had nothing to do with a traffic violation. That is what I told the, when I ultimately was interviewed by this AP reporter, that's what I told him. He's like, hey, look, it's not a traffic violation. And the other thing is, the one thing we know about these police involved cases is that it always involves resistance to arrest. Always. I mean, every single time it's because of resistance to an arrest. And that was it. And, and the, that, that essentially those were the quotes that were repeated in the article. But then by the next day, my my inbox was filled with hate mail and my <laughs> office managers getting phone calls from people. There's so many crazies out there that won't bother. It's a long story for me to tell just to say they won't bother to actually uh, review the facts. Let's look at what actually happened. Let's put our biases aside pro or anti-law enforcement, whatever those biases are. And let's take this one step at a time and look at what happened. It's way too early, in my opinion, to, to have uh, some of the opinions that I saw in my email box. They're just absurd. And um, until we can get past that, where people can be rational and put the emotion aside and say, let's look at what really happened here. Uh, we're going to be back in this spot over and over. You know, immediately upon this, uh, the release of this video and, and, the attorney for the family, you know, demanding the, the arrest of the officer. You, you automatically saw the ginning up of the anti-law enforcement media. But you also saw condemnation um, by the, by the uh, leaders of the state. You know, you, you saw them weigh in, inclu including the uh, Secretary of State basically came out and said, uh, 
you know, in responding to a FOIA request for the uh, records of the individual who was who was killed, um, she came out and said, "I'm not going to give you any of those records, even though." Uh, even though I'm legally obligated to, but I'm just not going to do it because I don't agree with the law and I'm going to condemn this officer. So y you see instantly that the, um, the political forces are already at work in a negative capacity and want, are crying out for the blood of this officer. What a terrible situation for this officer to be in. you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down, you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you friends to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. The political forces are already at work in a negative capacity and want, are crying out for the blood of this officer. What a terrible situation for this officer to be in. You know, it's, uh, it's incredibly, it's, it's almost unimaginable what, uh, what this officer and their family is going to have to deal with uh, over who, who knows how, how much time. Uh, and that, that is, that's like the playbook right there, is that the public officials all circle the wagons, and start condemning things that they don't understand. They don't have any of the facts. They've seen a little bit of video. They don't even understand what happened on the video. They are, are largely ignorant to how police officers are trained, wh what the law is that applies to, to law enforcement officers. All they know is that it's politically beneficial for them to simply condemn the officers in any way possible, in any controversial case. And so that's what they do. Um, and we've seen it at the local, the state, and the national levels, and particularly with this administration, that is the playbook. They condemn police. They condemn, you know, this, uh, I'm probably going to talk about it later, but this case of these Border Patrol agents in the infamous, uh, what was originally advertised by the media as a whipping case where these 
horseback mounted uh, border patrol agents were captured in a still <laughs> still uh, picture, which made it appear that they were whipping these migrants at the border, which they were not. And even the photographer said they were not. And initially the president uh, condemned them. And now uh, they were cleared in this investigation. But there'll never be an apology for that. Uh, but from the president or anyone else, it'll just it'll always be out there what the initial comments are by these supposed leaders and they'll never walk them back. And um, it's that kind of disrespect and that kind of uh, treatment that are, that is really forcing people out of law enforcement, Randy. And that's the problem, ultimately, is that you're, you're forcing people out of law enforcement. You're dissuading people from entering law enforcement, the best people anyway. And uh, you're going to be left with. Uh, a profession that is not able to do what it's done in the past, and that is reduce crime and, and build professionalism. So, you know, you you you, you hit something really really important here. So nationally, um, we are seeing a, you know a massive increase in violent crime. Um, there was a there was a uh, a story that came out today. In fact, um, I'll read this. This is from Fox News. Massive increase in black Americans murdered was a result of the defund the police movement. And that's uh, uh, the, the but the, the massive number of of uh, black citizens who have been murdered is so astronomic that it, 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 it would it would appear that anyone with any common sense in government would say, okay, We've got to do something about this. The, the same people that are that are condemning the police are the ones responsible for this massive increase in the murders of the same people that they claim to be um, championing. And that's the that seems to be the reality. I'll go even one step further. You're you're 100 right, but I'll go one step further in that. The poll, the polls, and we and we cite them in our, in our opinion pieces all the time. The polls of those who live in communities that are most at risk for victimization for violent crime, and those also happen to be communities that they happen to be black communities, largely in the United States and the cities across the United States. They are against defunding the police. They are against all this uh, anti-police rhetoric. They're, they they suffer the most from the police pullback, and it's reflected in the polls. So, so they, it's not as if they don't know that. Uh, you, you're 100% right that they are in the, unfortunately, these are largely the people who are vic victims. These spikes in homicides, the victims aren't white people in the suburbs. They're largely black people in the cities, black people of lower incomes. They live in neighborhoods that are most challenged by crime and most need the police, and they know it. Uh, it's not a mystery to them, but their leaders, for some reason, remain ignorant to this. Yep. And uh, and they're aided by what? By just one last thought, it's white liberals who are in the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrum who are aiding and abetting here. They think they're doing their um, you know lesser income minority friends in the cities a favor, and they're not. And that's that's the bottom line. That's who's pushing it. It's not it is not minorities in in crime challenge communities. They know they need the police. They want the police. It's um, largely white suburban liberals that are that are pushing this agenda. Exactly. Now, you you spent a couple of years as the assistant commissioner in Baltimore. I mean, one of the most troubled 
cities in the nation when it comes down to crime, when it comes down to uh, the the leadership of that city uh, is, I mean, just uh, I, how you took that job. <laughs> you you must have you must have had a uh, somebody that really talked you into that uh, because you're I mean you're dealing with Marilyn Mosby of all people uh, who's currently I believe under indictment is that correct uh, that's correct and uh, and, a, and a and a city leadership the half of them have gone to prison for corruption issues and the people in Baltimore I I I remember watching um a, a city hall meeting where the people are begging for the police to police to take the gang members off the street this i remember this this one elderly woman saying i sit in my chair and i watch the dope dealers on the corner i call the police and they won't even come well the reason they're not coming is because they're not allowed to even be police anymore so i i mean talk about a little bit about the, the you know the challenges you faced um, you know, f with with this issue in in the city of Baltimore, it's a, a perfect case study. I have post traumatic stress from my experience. <laughs> I believe you. Uh, you know, all I can say is God bless the men and women of the Baltimore Police Department who are still out there just doing an impossibly difficult job, um, and they're you know they're they're just doing it the best the, the best way that they can. Um, the politics in Baltimore are horrific. There, it's. Um, there's rampant corruption at the political level. And unfortunately, it's hard to see a way out because um, they're able to somehow trick the electorate into reelecting them. Marilyn Mosby, just for one example, she's in her second uh, term now. Crime has gone. She is the chief law enforcement officer for the city. She's the, the state's attorney. Crime has gone through the roof since she took over and it's, it's a very definite period of time when she took over in, in 2015 is when violent crime just went through the roof and she's on a bat i mean she's not ashamed to say she does not want to enforce any what she calls low-level crime um her conviction rate although she touts a 90 percent conviction rate that's based on really really fuzzy math i mean very fuzzy math uh, but she was re-elected and now uh there, we have an election coming up soon she is under federal indictment she most likely will be convicted and, and incarcerated um, based on the publicly available evidence and she's le leading in the poll still. So that, you know, oh it's, it's really tough when you try to, when you really try to express empathy for a city that's been through so much, and then for her to be leading in the polls tells you everything you need to know. There's a problem. I don't know how the city's going to get out of it. Uh, but until they can elect really grown up leaders who have the maturity level headedness and just prag just practical application of how you lead a city out of this sort of crisis. I just don't know. I don't know what it's, and, and Baltimore's not the only city. There's so many others that are in the same exact position and um, it's discouraging. Now, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be, you know, too political here, but are pretty much every one of those cities being run by Democrats? Uh, as far as I know, there are <laughs> only a few big cities in America that are lit, that have Republican mayors. And I think most of them are doing pretty well. <laughs> so, uh, so it's just a difference in approach. I think, uh, gosh, yeah, we could probably talk about this for a few days. But um, it, it's the leadership in these cities. They are they are full on board with going around after the cops, blaming the police for everything, 
expressing this uh, relentless pursuit for doing, you know, uh, no accountability for crime. You know, you can get arrested as many times, get out on bail with with you know no cash bail, nothing, reoffend, still stay out, uh, be convicted, not go to jail. It's not going to work. And um, the evidence is in. Uh, there's it's not even a question anymore. It's just because it's popular politically, they're going to continue to do it. And um, I don't know. I, you know, I wish I saw, uh, you know, an easy way out of this, but I don't. And um, step one is to restore honor and dignity to the law enforcement profession. Let them do their job. Um, and I, I really believe that's step one. And then elect prosecutors who will follow up when police officers go out there and make an arrest will actually pursue those cases in court and seek accountability. That's step two. And uh, we haven't gotten to step one yet. So right. we'll keep running away. So, you know, um, I want to talk uh, briefly about um, so we, we, we now see this new this new case we were just talking about in uh, in Grand Rapids and the narrative of, you know, he, he died because of a, a, a traffic violation. And as you said, that is not the case, but that's the narrative that's put out there. So one of the trends that we have seen, which is absolutely maddening to to observe is um, states and and cities actually ordering their police officers not to make traffic stops for what they call low-level traffic uh, violations, like license plate violations, headlights, taillights, equipment. But basically, these officers are being told, don't be a police officer. Don't enforce the laws. And, and for the life of me, I cannot understand how that is a lawful order. You know, in your, in your wearing your hat as an attorney, if, a, if a, a, a city council tells the police not to enforce laws that are on the books, how is that legal? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how that's legal. Uh, to just just outright say you can't do it. I mean, there, you know, every state that I'm aware of, when you when you take an oath and you're sworn in, you know, you're sworn in to uh, protect and defend the Constitution and to faithfully enforce the laws of the state and of the local jurisdiction. So, uh, primarily, these traffic laws or state laws are passed by state legislatures, and officers are sworn uh, to enforce them. Now. Is there a discretion in the enforcement? Certainly there's discretion because we want officers, um, we don't want them to be like robots. We want them to exercise discretion. Um, however, uh, to say that you're, you're no longer empowered to enforce any part of the criminal code or the traffic code or any other law uh, that the state legislature has empowered police officers to enforce, you know, I don't know how that stands. I don't know how it can stand. Uh, but it's what they're doing, and they're they're um, with with mixed success. I can tell you this, Randy. I was in um, Philadelphia this past weekend for a, for a family thing, and I happened to be staying downtown, you know, center city Philadelphia. And uh, during the day, it wasn't too bad. It's a big touristy area, so during the day, it wasn't too bad. But once the sun started to go down, I mean, it was it almost turned into like night of the living dead. I mean. Uh, it was a little bit unsettling to be out. I didn't want my children to be with me when, you know, if I had to leave the hotel and go grab a, you know, a bottle of water or something, I didn't want to have kids with me. And this is in the, this is in the downtown area of a major American city. It does not feel safe. I didn't even realize it, but apparently uh, there was a, there was like 30 or 40 shootings in Philadelphia over Easter weekend. 
I was oblivious to it. I wasn't watching the local news, but I see why there's no, there is no enforcement. And when people say, well, we don't want the police to engage in minor enforcement. Well, look, you and I were cops for a long time. It doesn't take long uh, to create an atmosphere where people feel like anything goes. Yeah. Uh, they're smoking, you know, they're on the corner. They're, they're smoking pot all, all literally on every <laughs> corner. The entire city smells like weed. Um, it doesn't matter where you stand on legalization of marijuana or whatever, but, you know, it doesn't take long for people to figure out you can just do whatever you want. The police aren't really present. And when they are, they're just been, they've been told to ignore all this stuff. And if they haven't been told to ignore it, they're in self-preservation mode. They realize if they go and they try to stop somebody from doing, you know, from a, engaging in a low-level violation, and then something bad happens, if the person assaults them or resists arrest, and it ends badly, that they're the ones that are going to come out on the short end of that, and and they've adjusted. And so, um, it, it's it's not a good situation. You know, your question was about traffic enforcement, but the the same thing goes for any and this lower-level enforcement that are just quality of life. Issues. You don't want people littering in the city. You don't want people engaging in flagrant traffic violations. You don't want them, you know, smoking weed or drinking openly or urinating. It's all just continues. It, it contributes to disorder and decay in the city. And it's it's kind of what's led us down this path, in my opinion. You're absolutely right. And but it's interesting that the Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police, which is the union that represents the majority of the officers in the city. Uh, are now actually fighting back against the order uh, to uh, to not make traffic stops for uh, based on their based on their orders. They're actually going to court to uh, force the hand and 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 test this resolve. Uh, are you aware of that? I was not aware of that, but good for them. And, and Philadelphia's got strong FOP leadership, and I'm so I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I'm I'm really anxiously uh, watching this, and I'm I'm just shocked that they're the first police union to to push back against this. To me, it's a clearly illegal order, and you know, you you were a cop for for many years. Police officers are are um, when when they take that oath. Part of that oath is that you will disobey an illegal order. You're told that you have, you must disobey an illegal order. So now, I mean, I'd be, I would really be interested in seeing a disciplinary case brought against an officer who violated their policy of don't, don't enforce the law. Wouldn't that be an interesting case? Well, you know, Randy, I think you're, I think you're hundred percent right. But in in a lot of ways, it's almost, it's like self-enforcing because the officers may choose to ignore the official order as being unlawful, but then they may fall back on their self-preservation instinct and say, I'm not going to be the guy to make a, a minor traffic stop that turns into like this Grand Rapids case. I'm not going to do it. I, you know, unfortunately, there's a, you know, I don't know about the, the cops, the active duty cops that you still talk to, but the ones I talk to, I, I get the strong impression that they're adopting sort of more of like a fire department model where yeah. they're waiting for something to happen and then they respond to it. Um, that, you know, they're going to uphold their duty. You know, if, if there's, if there's a dangerous situation that's in progress, they're going to go there and they're going to do what they have to do, but they're not going to go, they're not going to walk the plank. They're not going to engage in a lot of proactive enforcement. They're not going to make a lot of Terry stops or traffic stops, things that, that we would have done, um, 
in an effort to prevent crime, lawfully done. I mean, that's the other thing is that, you know, p many politicians act like stop and frisk is unlawful or unethical. Uh, it, it's, it's perfectly lawful and ethical. Um, it's actually unethical to not do it when you know it's proper to do it to prevent crime. It works. And um, I, I don't think today's police officers are engaging in that. I know I'm, I'm, I'm making a wide um, statement there, but I, I think there's much, much less of that. And I understand why. Oh, you're and, at, you're absolutely uh, right. I mean, deep policing is real. Deep yeah. policing is is a is a fact. I hear it all the time as well. Um, anecdotally from from officers who are working the streets right now. They're more they're the, you, you know, what's so sad is police officers today are more afraid of their own administrations, both in their police agency and in the city, than they are of the criminal. The fear that that is that is evident in these discussions is is to me um, heartbreaking. They're scared to death of their own police administrations and own city administrations, and they're more scared of them than they are of being in uh, dealing with with uh, with a criminal. That to me is is you know the the the, the breakdown of our of our cities and our our country is when the cops are afraid to be cops because they're afraid of their own bosses. That's heartbreaking. It's uh, it is. And it's it. And we're here. I mean, that that is where we are right now. These these cops, as you know, you know, they watch the news. They see what's happening. They see what has been happening for the past several years. They see what's happening in their own cities between, um, in many cases, uh, police chiefs, sheriffs, mayors, governors turning their backs on the cops, even even president. We've got a case where the the president and his direct appointees have turned their back on on a handful of U.S. Marshals. They see that happening. They see cops being prosecuted um, wrongfully and they know that they could be next and they don't want to be next. So, um, you know, either they're doing they're, they're choosing a couple other paths. One path might be, hey, I've got five years to go until retirement. I'm just going to be as safe as I can be. I'm, I'm going to try not to get involved in anything. Uh, I'll respond to calls like a firefighter would do, but I'm not going to be out there, you know, mixing it up and actually trying to prevent crime um, or they're just leaving the profession. They're going, they're going in, or, or in some cases, like in, in the case of Baltimore, uh, a lot of the cops will leave. They'll stay in law enforcement, but they'll go out to the suburbs where they feel that they get a little more support than they do in Baltimore. So it's very difficult to keep cops working in an urban environment. But, you know, you're hundred percent right. They, it, when, cop, when we join the police department, we realize it's going to be kind of dangerous. You know, you might, you might get in fights, you might get in foot chases, you might even get shot at or shot. You realize all those things, but you know, by and large, I don't think we realize that we could also be imperiled by politics. And um, a lot of these cops nowadays are just now kind of realizing that, and it's hit them in the face, and they're ha they have decisions to make as a result of that. You know, I'm, um, I just had a discussion this morning uh, for my. Uh, I did an interview for my my upcoming book. My upcoming book is Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. And I, I had uh, the, um, the good fortune to interview Christina Dages. Uh, Christina is the wife of Matt Dages, who was uh, accused unjustifiably uh, by his own agency uh, in, a, in a use of force uh, incident. And if you'll remember this case, uh, very minor use of force. But white cop, black suspect, 
uh, 15 seconds of videotape where the, the suspect actually, uh, during an encounter with, with uh, the officer, um, got in his face and pushed him, and Officer Day just pushed him back down in a sitting position. That was it. That was the use of force. Well, that would happen to be the bad timing because it was right after George Floyd, and the media went insane. Uh, social media, uh, you know, just just blew up, and and the city of La Mesa uh, burned as a result. And the uh, the city um, originally went to, and this is mind blowing. The city, um, even though the the use of force was cleared because it was a proper use of force, the city went to Officer Dages and his wife and said, "Look." We want you to resign, and we're get, we'll give you. And started at a hundred thousand. They offered him a six hundred thousand dollar bribe to just resign and go away. And when Matt Dages stood on his principle and didn't accept that six hundred thousand dollars, they prosecuted him. And this and the and the county attorney, the district attorney, went along with it. And, and two years of his life, the destruction of his life uh, took place, and he was recently found not guilty by a jury. And, and, and because he had, he had the, the, uh, the guts to, to fight them. And, and to me, Matt Dages and his wife are heroes. Uh, but, but look at what, what they went through to try and, and clear his name. Yeah, I mean, it's just an egregious case, uh, and there and it was not the only one, by the way. I heard other other anecdotal cases of where there's a controversial incident, and the city just tries to buy out the cop and uh, give him some money to, to go away. It just alleviates a problem for them, and uh, but it's it's not a good precedent to set. And I and I, I tell you, man, I, I, my hats off to them for fighting, fighting back, and standing up for what is right. I'm so glad that you know he was acquitted and. Um, you know, maybe he can get his good name back now. I mean, that's the that's the thing about these cases is that where do you go to get your name back? So many officers who be their names became household names in the last five years for all the wrong reasons. Who actually did nothing wrong? You know, who do they see to get their their good name back? Sometimes it's they lost their career. Sometimes they, uh, you know, were prosecuted and, and often are acquitted. Um, but who do they see to get their name back? And, that, and, and, and that's a question that there doesn't seem to be an answer for, because none of the politicians who make these pronouncements at the beginning of a case, just when there's a little bit of videotape out there, none of them will come back after an acquittal or after an investigation clears the officer and say, you know what, I was wrong. Maybe I shouldn't have um, come to that conclusion so early. Maybe I should have waited until the facts were available. They don't do that. They put it out there and then it's there forever. And uh, they've been doing it since Obama was a president and was uh, talking about the uh, sergeant who arrested Pro Professor Henry, Henry Louis Gates up in Cambridge. And that's where it started. Uh, Obama did it a couple of times. Biden has done it several times. Um, and every, you know, just about every mayor in every city across America ha continues to do it. And it's it's shameful. So while I'm talking about the Dages situation, this gives me a, 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 an opportunity for a quick commercial break. And that is um, one of the things that, that was uh, very critical in, in their situation was within hours of, the, of, their, of that uh, 
video going viral, they were doxxed. Um, they, 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 protesters were in their driveway. Um, they were able to get their, their, um, uh, the information about where they lived through, um, through computer records. And, and so what I want to bring up is, um, that there is a company called officerprivacy.com and they're a sponsor of this show. And what it's, it was started by a, by a police officer and what he does is really critical now for police officers around the country because I had no idea until he showed me how easy it is to find out where a police officer lives. Um, it's, there's all kinds of public records out there. So what officerprivacy.com does is it makes it more difficult to find by removing references and helping to uh, secure that information so that it is not readily available. And it's not expensive to do. And for me, this is now something that every police officer should look at. So go to officerprivacy.com um, and, uh, and, and take a look at that. It's, I think, right now, more than ever, this is critical for officer safety. So officerprivacy.com and uh, tell them you heard it here at The Voice for American Law Enforcement. So let's get back. We've only got a few more minutes, but you know, you and I could literally talk for hours about about what's happening. I just wanted to I wanted to talk about something that that I saw that that <coughs> made, that, that made me laugh, and um, it was it's about Seattle. So Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell is is giving an interview, and he was asked about about public safety, about the police, and. Uh, and about the crime, which is absolutely out of control in Seattle, which is, of course, one of the most liberal cities and was was leading in the forefront for the defund the police movement. So he actually has the he clearly wasn't ex expecting the question because he did a little hemming and hawing. But then he said that, <laughs> that Seattle is on a trajectory to be the safest city in the United States. He actually had the guts to say that to the public who who are reeling from out of control violent crime in the city and I th and I think that what was so ironic was just 2 days later there was a news story that came out and said because Seattle police are so short staffed they're down like a third of their 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 complement of officers that they're no longer even investigating sexual assaults so the mayor says that it's on the, the city is on a trajectory to be the safest city in America but oh you know those pesky things called rape and sexual assault we're not even bothering investigating them anymore can, is is this madness on a scale that is even comprehensible? Well, they've put their head, heads in the sand, obviously, uh, because the policies that they've implemented uh, with respect to police and with respect to law enforcement generally, I mean, even the policies that don't apply directly to police but had to do with what they call bail reform, <clears throat> what they uh, uh, are social justice prosecutors that are, have been installed in all these cities that are not prosecuting crime. Um they're, it's failing. And so they don't really know what to say. And so they come up with stuff like is on a trajectory to that might mean that, you know, yesterday we had five shootings.
Today, so far, we've only had three. So we're heading in the right direction. <laughs> exactly. uh, that's our trajectory. And so it's, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you have mayors saying stuff like that. But what I think is a little bit surprising, I probably would not have anticipated, is that we wouldn't see more or we wouldn't see stronger pushback among residents in these cities. And you start and you do see some of it. So it's not as if it doesn't exist. But I would have expected riots for the other reason, for when are you going to provide us with public safety? Because we're paying for it. And it's why we elected you to, to, to keep us safe. Uh, we're not really seeing it on that scale. And that is a little bit disheartening for me. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, one of the there's there's um, right now there's two recall efforts um, in play. One is in Los Angeles. Uh, against uh, Gascon, who is, to me is is probably the the quintessential um, woke prosecutor of this country. He he is he's unbelievable in his in his liberal and madness. And he used to be a cop. <laughs> he used to be a cop. That's the worst part. That's it's so embarrassing. It is. It, it really. is. So you got, <laughs> but you, at least you have a recall effort there, and you have a recall effort that seems to be picking up steam in San Francisco against Chesa Bowden, who is equally radical. Um, and and so at least we're starting to see citizens who are saying, wait a minute, enough is enough here. But how is it possible? You know, I, one of the, I had, I had a, um, the head of the District Attorneys Association, the, the United States District Attorneys Association on this show about a year ago. And I was asking him, I said, how is there no accountability for prosecutors who fail to prosecute. And he told me that accountability only comes at the election. And I, to me, that's maddening. It's, it, there, is no, there is no accountability for any of these Soros-funded district attorneys who are literally Trojan horse district attorneys destroying the criminal justice system from within. And there is no uh, there is no mechanism in place to protect the people from them. How is that possible? Yeah, it's it's infuriating. I mean, I, I, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure that that is, is the case, although it's untested. I mean, there's never, to my knowledge, in, in, in U.S. history, there's never been a widespread need to find a way to remove prosecutors who are, have, are not following their oath of office. But... Um, you know, if, if someone had some money and wanted to really push it and, you know, pick a city to try to take, you know, basically sue one of these public officials for failing to live up to their oath, because it's not, you know, it's not a matter of them applying their discretion in a certain way. It's a matter of them literally coming in and saying, OK, the state legislature has created entire categories of criminal offenses, but I am going to come in, even though I'm not a, I'm not the legislative branch. I'm going to come in and just wipe all of those things out. I'm not applying discretion on a case-by-case -case basis. I'm simply saying theft is no longer illegal, even though the state legislature made it illegal. That it would be interesting to see what would happen if um, essentially they were sued to compel them to follow the state law. I mean, any other public official can be sued to compel them to follow what the law says. And um, you know, we just haven't really seen it, um, which, is, which is frustrating. Uh, but I will I will add, Randy, a quick plug uh, for the LELDF and some of the some of the research work we do. We, we did uh, publish a research report about a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, called um, prosecutorial malpractice. 
It digs into some of these social justice prosecutors, how ineffective they've been. We have a sequel coming out soon in the coming months where we're going to focus a little less on the data. We focused a lot on outcome data, like on criminal outcomes uh, in our last version. This version is more of a follow the money um, where we're really digging into finance reports and looking at where the money is coming from, as you indicated, you know, George Soros and George Soros interests are behind much of it. But we really wanted to quantify that. We wanted to show that, you know, some of these candidates, 80 or 90 percent of the funds raised for their campaigns are all coming from Soros and Soros related interests. Right. So literally Soros is buying campaigns. This is not a matter of always oh, made some campaign contributions like anybody else could. He has purchased these elected offices for these people, and they're all over this country. They're not in one city or two cities. They're in almost every part of this country. And it's it's having a huge impact, creating chaos in the cities, as as we as all your listeners know. Well, when, and, when, uh, when that, when that report comes out, I want to have you back on to talk about this, because this is this is literally the the uh, what is destroying the American criminal justice system from within. But we've run out of time, uh, Jason. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me here on The Voice for American Law Enforcement. And uh, uh, we'll have you on again soon. That I can guarantee you. Great. Thanks for having me, Randy. It was a blast. So we've come to the end of the show. Um, now, I, a little good news. Usually at the end of this broadcast, I do what's called end of watch, and I and I eulogize the officers who were who lost their lives in the line of duty the previous week. I don't have any names to read, which is the first time I think this has ever happened. So I'm putting, I'm saying maybe that's the trajectory. Well, I wish it was, but we'll have to wait and see. So um, if you want to support law enforcement, I have the way for you to do it, and that is by supporting the Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. Uh, now, i got to be perfectly clear. It's an organization that I founded. It is a national nonprofit. Uh, we uh, support injured and disabled officers through peer support programs, through getting them into treatment if they need it, to providing uh, partners with PAWS for little emotional support dogs, and many other programs. So we need your help. If you go to thewoundedblue.org, you can see how you can help. Hit that donate button. And also, if you want to contact me, you can contact me at randy at thewoundedblue.org. That's randy at thewoundedblue.org. And follow me on Facebook at The Voice for American Law Enforcement and also The Wounded Blue. Thanks again for joining me here at The Voice for American Law Enforcement.